Good morning, church. Have you ever looked forward to something with great anticipation? Maybe, maybe even a desperate anticipation. Because you see, or at least you're hopeful for a bigger picture than what you can readily see, but maybe no one else around you sees it for what it is. They're stuck on the way things are here and now. And yet as it approaches that time, you find out you understood the bigger picture all along. Oftentimes, we can be rewarded for seeing the bigger picture when maybe nobody else did. In an episode from history in in July of 1883, the great orator and statesman William Wilberforce died in his bed after a 50-year fight to end slavery in England. Three days prior to his death, he had been informed that the British government had finally dropped all opposition to the freedom of the slaves. Something that was unfathomable ten years prior and absolutely unconscionable on his conversion to Christianity fifty years prior. When he first proposed his bill to end the slave trade, he had almost no support in Parliament. Despite there being revolutions all across Europe, it was unthinkable that this great liberalization that was sweeping across Europe would ever extend to the slave. And yet there was an undeniable recognition that something was happening. But did it really mean freedom? Wilberforce certainly thought so. So year after year he brought his bill to the floor and year after year it was voted down. But but a strange thing started to happen. He started to gain supporters. This continued year after year until 1807 when Parliament abolished the slave trade to a standing ovation. Something unthinkable was now applauded. But he saw a bigger picture. A fight to end slavery in the empire. A fight that would literally consume the rest of his life. But he would live to see it. Many wanted him to be satisfied with the victory he'd won, but through a persistent and faithful fight, with a vision that maybe only he saw at times, with his dying breath he was able to see the once distant hope come to fruition. In today's text, we see something very similar. But we also see two great truths about the kingdom of God revealed in today's text. One, very obvious, and oftentimes when the story of the Syrophoenician woman is is preached or read or taught, we focus on her faith. And it is a great faith. But the second truth we learn about the kingdom may not necessarily be so obvious. Today's text is wedged squarely between the two feeding miracles in which Jesus fed a multitude by multiplying to overwhelming abundance a seemingly insufficient amount of food. The 5,000 that we read a few weeks ago where he multiplied seven loaves and two fishes to feed a great multitude of 15 to 20,000 with 12 baskets of food left over. And the feeding of the 4,000, which we'll be looking at in a couple of weeks. More immediately, 
we see Jesus rebuking legalism in a discourse about what truly makes a person unclean. Under the Jewish law, certain foods were unclean, certain places were unclean, mixtures of certain fabrics defiled a person, certain times of the month were defiling, certain professions were unclean, certain people were unclean. And to top it all off, the Pharisees had added their own laws to the mix. It was unthinkable that anything else would ever be true. That was the way that it had always been. But in a moment, Jesus turned all of what the Pharisees thought about the law and taught about the law on its head because the law could never really make a person clean. Maybe a person at best could be a whitewashed tomb, but never truly clean. The law served only to instill an awareness of God's holiness and the reality of sin as a barrier to fellowship with God. But once the defilement of the heart is removed and full fellowship with God becomes a reality through the substitutionary atoning death of Christ, the law has been fulfilled and is no longer necessary. Sin, what comes out of the heart of a person is what defiles him and separates him from God. The unthinkable had become a reality after 1,500 years. Now, as if to punctuate his statement about clean and unclean, Jesus went to the region of Tyre, where we see in today's text, a decidedly pagan city, presumably with his disciples as they accompanied him along the way. Now, Matthew's account of this of this episode specifies that his disciples were with him, but that's not present in today's text. Now, Jesus wasn't completely unknown in this region. We know from Mark 3, 7 and 8 that Jesus was known. But today's episode is the only time recorded in the gospel account of Jesus' ministry where he left Israel. All of his other teaching, all of his other miracles and ultimately his death and resurrection, occurred in Israel, the land of God's chosen people. But today, he ventures elsewhere. And only for this encounter. We're told initially that Jesus did not want anyone to know that he was there. Mark doesn't really tell us why. Could he want time with his disciples to teach them without the interruption of the crowd? Possibly. Could he be avoiding Herod and the Pharisees? Maybe. He had, just, he had started making great enemies of them. Could he, be re- could he be trying to avoid the crowds who are ready to crown him king? Maybe. Or... Could he be about to make a point about the kingdom of God and how one can see it? Regardless, we're told that he was unable to remain hidden. Who found him? The crowds? The authorities? No. A desperate mother who saw the bigger picture of Jesus' ministry, who faithfully asked for what she knew she had no right to ask. 
And in this irony, we see a glimmer of what Paul would later refer to as a mystery. Let's now turn to our text. We're in Mark 7, 24 through 30. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. In today's text, we're confronted with a desperate situation. A little girl was possessed by a demon. And in a demonstration of the extreme length that a parent will go to protect their children, the woman looks for and finds a man, the Son of God, who has taken great lengths to be hidden. We are immediately confronted by a faith that is diligently searching for Jesus. The first thing we learn about faith that Jesus honors is that it's characterized by hunger. It's not complacent, wishing that things might be better than they currently are. We see in verse 26 that the Syrophoenician woman begged Jesus to cast out the demon from her daughter. So what? We've seen Jesus cast out demons on multiple occasions so far in Mark. What makes this different? To fully understand the level of desperation, we have to consider the context. Jesus had gone to the region to be hidden. He did not want to be found, at least by the crowds. But he was not successful in staying hidden. How can Jesus be unsuccessful at anything you might wonder? Simply, he can't. Things happen exactly as he intends them to happen. We learn that the word of his arrival in the area spread quickly. However, the crowds don't gather. But a woman whose daughter was possessed by a demon heard Jesus was present, and she sought him out, and she found him. The text communicates that she wasted no time in seeking Jesus out. The CSB translates verse 25 this way, immediately after hearing about him. And the NIV translates it as, as soon as she heard about him. The audacity of the woman seeking Jesus out is is that she was not a Jew. She was a Gentile, specifically a Syrophoenician from the region of Tyre. The Jews detested Tyre. Tyre used to be a wealthy city and, and an ally of Israel during the reign of Solomon, a land whose cedars had built 
the first temple. But they broke that alliance and scripture does not regard them well for it. In Psalm 83, Tyre is specifically listed among the enemies of Israel. The prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel charged Tyre over their pride regarding their fortifications. Tyre was an island city whose walls had never been breached until Alexander the Great saw this great island and built a causeway to the island that stands to this day. If you look at any map of the region, Tyre looks like a little peninsula. The causeway built 2,300 years ago still stands. Ezekiel records that Tyre rejoiced at the misfortunes of Israel, hoping to benefit from them. And Joel and Amos record that rather than coming to Israel's aid, Tyre actively enslaved the remnant. In coming to Jesus, the woman was coming to a man from a people who hated her. And yet, she still went and found Jesus. We're told that the woman begged Jesus to heal her daughter. And the grammar of the text here indicates that she did not ask just once. And Matthew's account goes into much more detail about her begging. Her asking was both urgent and intense. She was persistent in her asking. She was relentless. Her faith was characterized by a single-minded hunger for what only Jesus could offer. Secondly, despite her desperation for Jesus to heal her daughter, she also exhibited humility in her request. The first hint of humility is that when she arrived, she fell down at Jesus' feet. And falling down at Jesus' feet, she demonstrated that she not, is not asking her equal to heal her daughter. It's a recognition that she knows that she has no claim to what she's asking. And she recognized that Jesus had no obligation to concede to her request. Further, we see humility in her response to Jesus. When Jesus challenges her, saying that it's not right to feed the children's bread to the dogs, she does not fight Jesus on this characterization. Rather, she states, Yes, Lord. This is a strong affirmation that could also be rendered as certainly so. It's tempting to get stuck on Jesus comparing her to a dog. In Israel, dogs were dirty creatures. Wild curs that were scavengers often associated with pigs and filth and death. Remember though, we're not in Israel currently and Mark is not writing to a Jewish audience. In the Greek and Roman world, dogs were often valued members of the household for both companionship and work. And certainly, her response to Jesus indicated that she did not understand the statement as an insult, rather as a statement of subordination. When you're feeding the household, do you take the food that belongs to the children and use it to feed the pets and tell them, sorry kids, no food tonight. Rover had to eat and all we had was your steak. No, we would be terrible parents if we did that. You make sure your children have their fill 
and the dogs get fed from what's left over. And as a caring pet owner, you make sure that there's enough left over. The dogs will be fed, but the children will eat to satisfaction first. She did not dispute Jesus' characterization of her place in the plan of salvation, further confirming that she understands that she has no right to expect anything from Jesus. Contrast this with the response of the crowds who wanted miracles. Contrast this with the response of Jesus' family in Mark 3. They were coming to seize him because of the things he was saying. They believed he was a lunatic. Contrast that with that, this with that of the scribes in Mark 3, and really anywhere else for that matter. They believed he was an agent of the devil. And contrast this with the response of the disciples, who were confused most of the time. The ones to whom it was revealed at his conception and the ones who should have known the prophecies, all children of promise, completely missed what should have been obvious to them. They had the law, they had the prophets, and yet this woman, a Gentile, approaches Jesus with humility, recognizing him as Lord and recognizing that Jesus would have been completely just in refusing her plea. And yet, she makes her plea. We learn that faith that Jesus honors is characterized by a humility that recognizes our position before him. The final thing that we learn about the woman's faith is that it's characterized by hope. Hebrews 11 tells us that hope is definitional to faith. It is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. It is a staid assurance in the reality of things not yet seen, but known beyond a, beyond a shadow of a doubt to be true nonetheless. We see the Syrophoenician woman's hope in her response to Jesus in verse 28. When Jesus initially tells her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She responds not argumentatively, not oppositionally, but in agreement. She recognizes Jesus' authority to say what he said. But she also recognized that even the dogs are blessed by the abundance of the feast. Is Jesus speaking literally when he states that it's not right to take the children's bread? On one level, yes, but on the deeper level, no. He's certainly communicating a literal truth about the plan of salvation, but he's using figurative language to do so, and the woman's hearing ears rightly perceive it. To put into literal words, Jesus is telling the woman that it's not right to take the kingdom of God the bread, which has come to Israel first, the children, and give it to the Gentiles, the dogs, first. She but she recognizes the promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12 when God said, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all families of the earth shall be blessed. 
the salvation of the Jews meant blessings for the Gentiles. The children would be rightfully fed first, but the dogs would also be fed from the abundance. Isaiah prophesied in chapter 2 that it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above all the hills and the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. All nations, not just Israel, would be drawn to the mountain after the Lord. Isaiah further states that on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. Not only will all nations be drawn to the mountain, but the veil of darkness will be removed and all the nations will enjoy the feast. We see bread as a reality and a symbol appear four times in rapid succession in this section of Mark. Starting with the feeding of the 5,000, the people satisfied, are satisfied by bread. And then there are 12 baskets left over as an object lesson. We see in chapter 7 in the run-in with the Pharisees when the disciples don't wash their hands before eating bread, Jesus took the opportunity to explain that what they taught about clean and unclean was all backward. Bread is symbolizing salvation and the feast to come shows up here. And bread will show up again when we close out this section on the feeding of the 4,000. When Jesus is talking about bread, talking about bread, he's often talking about spiritual bread, the bread of life. And even when physical bread is being used as a sometimes not so obvious object lesson. He's talking about salvation that will ultimately be realized at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God, he says in Luke. While salvation comes from Israel, and for Israel first, the Gentiles have a place and have always had a place in the plan of salvation. The woman asserted that the dogs don't have to wait until the children are finished. While the dogs cannot take what is rightfully the children's off the table, they can enjoy the bread that's cast from the table. She recognizes that salvation is first, but not exclusively for the Jews. What was promised to Israel is so abundant that the Gentiles will be blessed by that abundance without worry of depriving Israel what was promised her. Even now, God's final salvation is breaking into human history and is available to all the nations. This is the already not yet nature of the kingdom of God that we often talk about we learn that a faith that Jesus honors is characterized by hope in the promises of God. And Jesus' response to this faith was not refusal. He did not rebuff her. 
he did not correct her. Rather, he affirmed her statement of faith. Mark only records, maybe somewhat unsatisfyingly, that for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. Matthew elaborates, recording that Jesus explicitly commended her great faith. But the meaning is the same in both. Jesus does not deny her faith. Rather, he responded to the, gen- to the faith of a Gentile and the promise long ago made by allowing her to see part of the kingdom of God. But to simply see this episode as just another miracle, a continuation of teaching, healing, and casting out demons, would be to completely miss the point. Certainly, this is a miraculous event. Jesus didn't even need to be in proximity to the woman's daughter. Simply saying it was enough for it to be true. What a powerful Savior we have. And yet, this is not the point. In a demonstration of his power over the spiritual realm, Jesus teaches us something about the extent of the kingdom of God and the plan of salvation in a way that we haven't yet seen in Mark. While Jesus tells the woman to let the children be fed first, we see not just the current limit, but also the future expansiveness of Jesus' ministry. The nations always figured into the plan of salvation. But Israel is God's chosen people and they will be fed first. But the nations will be fed from the abundance. Mark opens up his gospel with Jesus' proclamation of the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The first words of Jesus in his ministry recorded in Mark. The kingdom of God is at hand. As I was preparing this sermon, I was also reminded of the Nunc Dimittis, which is Simeon's hymn to God when Jesus was presented at the temple after his birth. Luke, Luke records, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and a glory to your people, Israel. The salvation and kingdom of God had arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. And the kingdom was on the move in his ministry, and neither sickness, hardness of heart, demons, or death Neither Jew nor Gentile could stand in his way. Salvation had come to Israel. The wedding bell was sounding and the children were being called to come to the table to feast. The kingdom was here. And yet, the fullness of the kingdom of God has not yet been realized. When Jesus tells the woman... Let the children be fed first. He's not claiming that only the children would be fed. 
when first is used in Mark, it's always used to indicate temporal priority. In Mark 3, we see that Satan is first bound, then plundered. Coming up in Mark 9, we'll see that Elijah must first come, then the Son of Man. And in the Olivet Discourse in chapter 13, we see that first the gospel must be proclaimed to the nations, then the end will come. First is a statement of priority, not exclusivity. This temporal priority indicates a privileged position for Israel in the plan of salvation. The word that's translated as fed might, first be, might better be translated as satisfied. Which indicates that there would be something left over. In fact, the same word here that's translated as fed in let the children be fed first is translated as satisfied at the, in the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6, verse 42. It's describing the state of the 5,000 after eating the bread and the fish. What was the evidence of their satisfaction? Twelve baskets of leftovers. How else was done, one know when the attendees at a feast have been satisfied? When there are leftovers. If we read the text as simply a story about a miracle we can gloss over the fact that there were leftovers. However, everything that Jesus does has a purpose. Doesn't feeding 15 to 20,000 people with meager rations demonstrate his power? How would leftovers further demonstrate his power? Simply put, Focusing on the feeding without the leftovers misses the mark. If Jesus wished to simply feed 5,000 people, he could multiply seven loaves, or he could multiply loaves and fishes to exactly what, what 5,000 people would need, and yet he multiplied it to abundance. But the leftovers there serve as an object lesson that isn't really explained at this point we only begin to see bread pop up again. We're only beginning to see a shadow of the implication of abundance. But, the woman who had ears to, but to the woman who had ears to hear, the meaning couldn't be clearer. Mark takes great pains to emphasize that the woman is not Jewish. Mark states that she's a Greek, a Gentile, that is, a non-Jew. For identification purposes, that would have sufficed. But he goes on to state that she was a Syrophoenician. On the surface, this might seem redundant. Okay, we get it. She's not one of the Jews. And that's the point. She's not a Jew. She is of a people who were designated as enemies of Israel by the prophets, who had betrayed Israel, who had rebelled against the alliance. And yet... This woman had eyes to see Jesus for who he truly is and ears to hear the words that he was saying. This stands in stark contrast 
to the Jews, the children of promise, the chosen people, and even Jesus' own disciples just, who just didn't get it. Remember, they had the prophets, yet this woman had the type of faith that Jesus honored, a faith that is hungry, humble, and hopeful. The writer of Hebrews wrote that without faith it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. The reward, brothers and sisters, is the kingdom. The woman did not ask to supplant the chosen people. In faith, she asked to taste of the abundance. She understood the greater fullness of the kingdom of God that was not yet but that would be, that the kingdom of God would include not just Israel, but the Gentile. Not just one nation, but a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. As Paul wrote, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham and the sons, natural and adopted, all share in the same inheritance. Another aspect of the not yetness of the kingdom of God is that Jesus makes a distinction between the children and the dogs. He does not talk about sitting the dogs at the table with the children or in transforming the dogs into children. Rather, these remain two distinct groups. The woman does not argue this point. Rather, she affirms it and Jesus commends her statement. The dogs do not have to sit at the table in order to share in the abundance. The dogs do not have to take the food off the table. The dogs don't get fed instead of the children. The dogs, as a distinct and separate group, will be fed to satisfaction from the abundance given to the children. This is the beginning of what Paul would later call the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. In his letter to the Ephesians, he wrote, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? It was always the plan of salvation. That it was always the plan that salvation would come to all the peoples of the world. But at this moment in time in Mark, the priority was Israel. It was not yet time for the greater fullness of the kingdom to be revealed. But as the kingdom of God is wont to do, it breaks forth into human existence in a powerful way. And in response to the woman's faith, Jesus pulled back the veil that the psalmist wrote about and allowed her, a Gentile, to experience the abundance of the kingdom of God. So what do we do with this? How should it impact us? The obvious part of this deals with our faith. Our faith should be characterized by hunger, humility, and hope. Are we daily seeking and wrestling with the truth about God's word? 
like the Bereans in Acts 17? Are we receiving the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things are so? Are we gorging ourselves to satisfaction on the word of God? That's what hunger looks like, going to any extreme to know the will of God revealed in his word. Do we, are, do we carry ourselves with a complacency or do we understand our position in the plan of salvation? Do we understand that the only thing that we contributed to our salvation was sin that made it necessary in the first place? Do we act as if salvation was obligated to us or do we understand that it is a free and unmerited gift of God that without God lifting the veil from our minds, we too would be no better than the unbelieving world? Do we have assurance in the promises of God? Do we feel the weight of the imminence of the kingdom or have we become complacent, believing that the kingdom is still a distant reality? The kingdom of God arrived in Jesus Christ. Through faith we are partakers in the kingdom, but the fullness of the kingdom has not yet been realized. But that could change, as the writer says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. This hope should drive us to the second application. We are partakers in the abundance, but we are fools to sit on it. Like the parable of the talents, we're called to go out and multiply the abundance we've been given and to do so quickly. Because the master could return to settle accounts at any time. What did the master say to the servant who buried his talent? You wicked and slothful servant. The gospel is for all peoples even those we would think of as unclean and undesirable. Corrie ten Boom tells of her first encounter with a former guard at the Ravensbrück concentration camp in 1947. She'd been speaking at a church in Germany. She recounted that in Germany it was commonplace for the Germans to stand up and somberly leave church without any conversation. And as she was watching the crowd leave, she saw a balding man walking against the flow of the crowd to approach her. She immediately recognized him as a former guard at the concentration camp where she was at, where her sister was executed. She talked about how the former guard, who did not recognize her but only knew she was at Ravensbrück from her talk, and he proceeded to talk about how he had become a Christian and repented for his sins. But now he was approaching her to ask her forgiveness for the evil that he had done her. She recounted the fear that she experienced in the silent prayer that she uttered, asking that God would give her the strength to forgive the man. She understood in that moment that she could not withhold forgiveness from this man simply because she found what he did detestable. We don't get to choose the sinner, brothers and sisters. The choice belongs to God alone. We don't get to withhold the gospel because we don't like the person or we deem them not worthy. On that day, on the day, great day of the Lord, Paul will be praising God alongside those he persecuted and praise God for it. The wedding feast of the Lamb will be attended by all sorts, including those who actively opposed Christ. That is, all of us. We were all once mortal enemies of the king before the glorious kingdom of God broke into our lives and we were redeemed by the blood of the, his son. We will feast from the abundance of God's riches because of his matchless grace. Praise be to God. 
Let us pray. Father, thank you. And we praise you for your great salvation to your people. Not, not only to the children of promise in Israel, but also to the world who feast from the abundance that was given them. That, Father, on that day, that all the nations of the world will be gathered before your throne praising you. And that we, we need faith to see that, Father. I pray that you would strengthen our faith. That we would have a longing and a desire to know you, to seek you out and your word. But that we would approach you with all hope and humility. That we would seek to share the abundance that we've been given with the world not just those that we find likable, but those that the world would find detestable, maybe even those that we find detestable. Because, Father, before, before the kingdom broke into our lives, we were that person. We thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.